very thankful to the Lord for the opportunity to come to this sacred desk and to try to impart some of the things that God's Word would say specifically to you and I this morning as well as the church in every period of time. We want to address a subject that's near and dear to our hearts and and it's a sobering reality that we are dealing with this morning. The title of our study is Perilous Times Shall Come. I'd like you to open your Bibles with us to 2 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to go to 2 Timothy 4. I, I, I actually want to start in chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 where we get our, our text in verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. It's not a mystery to us, or it should not be, that peril is a part of a fallen world. When we speak about the essential consequences of sin, we know that there are within these consequences judgments that flow from a holy God, and then the natural aspects of the human condition that open us up to our fallen nature and to satanic deception. And I believe that the Apostle Paul, in his last letter that he will write, the last of 14 epistles that are attributed to the Apostle Paul, in these words, he is preparing not only Timothy, but the church in every period of time for the essential truth of Christ's second coming. He's going to point always to the victory that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Recently, I read an interesting article of a Byzantine chapel that was found about 15 miles from Jerusalem and and this chapel is called the Chapel of the Glorious Martyr. And they found this interesting mosaic in the floor of this, the basement of this uh, uh, ancient uh, ruins. And it was an eagle that was, uh, was uh, wearing an omelette. And underneath it said, in Christ we conquer. And it was dedicated to the martyrs that had been uh, uh, killed uh, during that period of time and, and those that would subsequently be uh, slaughtered as we see today in Afghanistan itself. I believe we're living in perilous times. And I want to understand how the Apostle Paul dealt with that and how he pointed us to the reality of it. And how that the conditions that existed in the first century of the church would only intensify with the passage of time. I want to read these first few verses to begin with uh, from the pen of the Apostle Paul. He's writing to Timothy just before his own martyrdom in Rome. And he says, this know also. I want you to be certain of this. I want you to be sure of this, that in the last days perilous times shall come, 
For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Dropping down to verse 13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Here the Apostle Paul is describing a period of time called the last days. The last days are that period of time between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we refer to it as the church age. The age in which Jesus came into the world uh, and established his church. And at the end of the age is going to come and get his church. This period of time is called in the scriptures the last days. I find it interesting that in the language of 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. He wrote, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines or teachings of devils. I believe many of the philosophies that we're seeing today in our own country, in our, in our world, are demonic. I believe what we just witnessed in the surrender to the Afghanistan uh, thugs, is nothing more than demonic power, demons, delusion, confusion. Everywhere you look, just pick up a newspaper. All you have to do, it doesn't take very long before you find articles that are trying to justify uh, abortion, the slaughter of innocent children, articles that would justify redefining marriage in a multitude of ways, not just between men and men and women and women, but also men and animals. How about that? All kinds of confusion going on. The, the crime rate in our country, the resistance to any kind of law and order, the efforts to rewrite the American Constitution, the ideology behind the leadership in the State Department, Many things could be said on that, but I, I just want you to understand where we're coming from when we talk about perilous times in the last days. What days are we talking about? I believe we're talking about our day. I believe that you and I are living in the last days of the last days, and we're only going to see an intensifying measure of this spirit of confusion, this delusionment and demonic control of this broken and fallen world. The Apostle Paul is facing imminent death. This is his last word. He knows that he's been sentenced according to the fourth chapter. He knows that he's already been sentenced. The time of my departure is at hand. He says, Timothy, if you're going to come, you better come quick. Because my time on this earth is very, very quickly running out. So you better hurry up, Tim. 
if you're going to come and see me and, and bring me the things that I have requ requested of you. It would be interesting, at least from my perspective, it would be interesting to sit by the Apostle Paul as he awaited his own execution at Rome. And he's writing down this letter. And this letter has a, a tone that is unique to the writings of the Apostle Paul. In the first letter that he wrote to Timothy, you'll find that he refers over and over again to some. Some have departed from the faith. Some have abandoned me. Some have fallen and so forth. But in the second letter, you find he's changed the sum to all. All have forsaken me. All have left me behind. There's none here but Luke. Beloved Luke is still here, but the rest of the Christian community is really afraid to come around me. And it's no wonder, because under the leadership of Nero, that wacko uh, Roman uh, emperor, uh, who was at this time about 26 years old and losing his mind, just absolutely going crazy, burning down the city of Rome, just crazy, and blaming it on Christians and justifying that, uh, he would go and incarcerate and, and, and literally burn Christians, uh, blaming them for the burning of the city of Rome. They were scapegoats. And the Apostle Paul is one of their leaders. And he's waiting his own execution. But being a Roman citizen, he's not going to be executed by a cross. He's not going to be executed by burning. As a Roman citizen, he would be executed by beheading. So he's waiting to be beheaded. And this is the, this is the thing that's on his mind. I want you to, all, I, I want you to understand the, the tone of the letter itself. It's a very graphic, sobering letter. It's a letter that, that has overtones of loneliness, overtones of uh, isolation, if you will. And what's on his heart is not the very present suffering that he's about to endure, but he's looking beyond his own circumstance to the end of the age. And in the first chapter, he's very personal. In the second chapter, he's very practical. In the fourth chapter, he's very pastoral. But in chapter 3, he's prophetic. He's speaking as a prophet. I want you to know also that in the last times, the last days of this economy, the last period of time before the second coming of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul would refer to that period of time in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 if you'll remember that study we did together in the book of Hebrews God who hath in sundry times and in diverse manners spoken to the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son the last days the last period of time of this fallen broken world these are the days that James wrote about in James chapter 5 and verse 3. These are times of, of great peril. He would speak to the culture and say, You have heaped treasure together for the last days. He's speaking to those who worship wealth and those who we'll talk about a little bit more in just a moment. James is pointing us to 
uh, a materialistic, if you'll allow me to use the word, humanistic society, a secular society. In other words, looking at the world only through secular eyes, looking at the world only on a horizontal plane without respect or regard to the vertical relationship that we have with our creator. These are the last days in which he describes them as perilous. The word perilous comes from a Greek word that is only found twice, actually, in the whole New Testament. And this word means grievous, hard, difficult, fierce. In fact, the only other place that this word is found is in uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, when Jesus is coming to heal the, the Gadarean demoniac. You remember that story, how that he was bound in chains, but he'd break the chains and he'd scream at night and he'd cut himself because he was under demonic control, right? He was under demonic influence and he, was a, he said he was a legion. In other words, a thousand demons were inside the soul of that one person. And Jesus came to rescue him. And in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 28, it says that that Gadarean was exceedingly fierce. That's the same term that is translated in our text, perilous. Exceedingly fierce. A time of demonic influence. A time of demonic confusion. And the Apostle Paul says, I want you to know this. I want you to understand this. I want you to teach this to the church, to prepare the church for the coming days of persecution, the coming days of affliction, the coming days of tribulation that is going to come certainly upon the whole earth. In fact, if you'll turn back very quickly to Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is mentioning these days in in Matthew chapter 24, listen to this. He says, uh, drop down for time's sake to verse 6. And see if this doesn't sound like your generation. See if this doesn't relate to some of the things that you and I are seeing each and every day in our own country. Verse 6 of Matthew 24. Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass. What did Paul say? I want you to also know that perilous times will come. All right? Jesus said the same thing. These things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be what? Famines? Famines? Shall there be pestilences? Diseases? Earthquakes in different places, and all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and, and shall kill you. He's talking to Christians. And shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Is there a coldness toward the things of God today? Is there a waxing of coldness over Christianity in general? I believe we see evidences of that all around us. 
But going back to our text in 2 Timothy 3, I want to see what he's describing that is going to intensify during the days of peril. And we're going to uh, divide our study into four parts because there are, there are four variations of the word lover in the reading this morning. You're going to find that there is a lover of self, there is a lover of money or silver, right? There's a lover of pleasure, and then there's a lover of God. Now, as we study this, uh, we're going to prepare our hearts because it's very sobering. It's very introspective. It's, it's very uh, uh, apparent that we need to be reminded of who we are in the world because we are quickly losing our identity. We are, we are quickly compromising ourselves in the Christian realm so that we blend in, so that we're not as noticeable in the culture war that's raging all around us. And we think we're doing it for peace's sake. We've convinced ourselves that silence is, is often the best rule to follow. After, after all, there's Christians getting fired every day on jobs where they are not willing to call students by another gender than their biological identity. There's, there's so many things going on in our culture every day that speak to the peril that Paul was prophetically writing about 2,000 years ago. The first term that I want you to notice is men should be lovers of their own selves, self-love. This is uh, uh, something that, you, you know, you say, well, that's something that we have to worry about in the world. But I believe what the Apostle Paul is dealing with more than anything is, is not the conditions that are found in the world, but the conditions that are found within the church. These are people who profess to be Christian, profess to be followers of the Lamb. And yet... The Apostle Paul is identifying the very same sin traits in these professed Christians as in the unregenerate pagans all around them. And that's why he's so concerned. I believe that's the greatest peril that the church today faces. The word or the expression lovers of self is actually one uh, Greek word. It means self-love, autophileos. It, it's it's uh it's loving yourself in such a in in a negative way, a self-serving way, uh, a devotion to self above all others, a devotion to self and self-esteem uh, and self-fulfillment and self-image above any other concern. It's exactly opposite of what Jesus actually taught in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. When the young ruler came to Jesus and says, which is the greatest commandment? Remember, he said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy mind, soul, heart. Remember that? And he said, and the second is like unto it, it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. For in these two laws, in these two commandments, hang all the law. In other words, Jesus is saying, you fulfill those two uh, two aspects of the law, and I guarantee you, 
you're going to have a peaceful and prosperous society. And there's a lot of preaching in that, in those two simple principles. But the thing I want you to see is, in our culture, Christians have reversed that mandate. They say, it's more important for you to love yourself than it is for you to love God. Just turn on your radio and listen to some of the current teaching in, in public circle in Christian circles. It's talking about self-esteem. What the most important thing for you to do is to esteem yourself, brother, or esteem yourself, sister, and then everything else will fall into place. But that's exactly opposite of what Christ said. Christ said we need to attend to the vertical dimension of love first, that our devotion and honor of God ought to supersede any other devotion our activity in our life. And then he says, thou can't then he says you can love your neighbor in the right way. What does it mean to love our neighbor as ourselves? It is to wish good upon your neighbor that you would wish for yourself. It, it would wish, it would it would assist, it would uh, help someone in a, a lesser uh, 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 position or a suffering position to experience the goodness that we have received from God. You see, that's what he's talking about. It's a healthy self-image because it's a Christ image. It's a desire in the heart of the believer to be more like Jesus because that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus Christ honored his Father every time he helped someone else. Have you ever noticed that about him? He always deflected the praise, didn't he? He always deflected it. He never accepted the praise for what he had done. Because what he was doing was because of his love for the Father. His love for God first. Then he loved his neighbor, you see. All right, so this is a, this is a, a very tenacious, pointed principle that we want to understand better. I, I wanted to share this with you, something that uh, St. Augustine wrote in his marvelous book called The City of God. Augustine wrote this. He said, Two cities have been founded by two different loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. And the heavenly city built by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glorifies itself, while the latter glorifies the Lord. I thought that was just a tremendous statement. Because we see in that the, the tension there is between the city of self and the city of God. The, the uh, desire to do my own thing, rather than doing the thing that God has commanded me to do. Did you know that it's impossible for you and I to be uh, true Christians without self-denial? Jesus taught this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He says, uh, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me daily. It's a daily surrender. It's a daily walk that we're talking about. Not a one-time experience, 
of grace. But it is a daily progression. It is a daily walk with the Master so that we more and more are conformed to His image. And we more and more respond to our culture the way Christ responded to it. So Jesus taught that we must deny ourselves in order to be Christians, in order to follow Christ. Because isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus left the shining portals of glory and came out down into a sin-cursed earth to die on a cross. Not for anything that he had done wrong, but to pay the sin debt for his people. Jesus denied himself and came to embrace his cross. I love what Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2 verse 12 when he said, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and unrighteousness, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present evil world, looking, looking for, and hastening to, looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. I love what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. He said, the wicked, presumptuous are they, and self-willed. He said something that is characteristic of false prophets, false teachers, false preachers, false leaders. Something that's consistent is that they're wicked. They're, they're, they're presumptuous and they're self-willed. They are following, honoring, serving themselves. It sounds kind of cultic, doesn't it? A lot of the cults that we see in our own nation follow that pattern. The, the, the founder is somebody that demands worship. Demands worship. Peter warned about that in 2 Peter 2, verse 10. What a great contrast between self-seeking love and self-giving love, as Paul wrote about uh, in Philippians chapter 2. He said in verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What did Christ do? He humbled himself. What did he do? He became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to have this kind of mindset. I, I want you to have this kind of humility. I, I want you to possess this goal in my life that uh, I might become more and more like Jesus Christ instead of loving myself. I want to love my Savior. All right, the effects of self-love are varied, and they're presented, they're presented in, in this context. They're presented here as the love of money. The word covetous there, it's a uh, this word, this particular word that's translated covetous is a word that uh, means to love silver. It is the love of money. It's, and, and what he's talking about in a broad sense is materialism. When material things become more important than spiritual things. When material gain becomes more important than spiritual knowledge. 
These are the things that Paul is warning us about. He's saying, look out, perilous times are coming, and this is what's going to produce them, self-love and the love of money. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Haven't we witnessed that? People that forsook or left the church, left the Christian community so that they could go make a million somewhere else and end up shipwrecked, a life of ruin and sorrow. And we see that so much in our generation. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, No servant can serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon there is money. You can't be a slave to money. We need to be slaves to Christ. Then he goes through a litany of uh, characteristics that follow those that are in love with self and in love with money and in love with the world. He begins by calling them boastful. He says they're boastful. Alesan is the Greek word, and it means to be a braggart. This is the outward expression of self-love. They're proud, which means uh, comes from a compound Greek word that means uh, to be above another, to be superior. Have you ever met someone like that? Uh, they're superior to you in everything. They're arrogant. It could be translated arrogant. Disobedient. Um, rebellion, if you will, against parental authority. Have we seen some of that? Have we seen some of that in our generation? In fact, some psychiatrists and psychologists claim that that's healthy for children to disobey, to rebel against the authority of their parents. But, but just use your common sense. If our children are not made to respect our authority in the home, on what basis do you think they're going to respect the authority of anyone anywhere else? You understand where I'm coming from? We're seeing it every day. Every day. Disobedient to parents and that spirit of rebellion. The unthankfulness. How about that one? Unthankful. This is a self-elevated people feel that they deserve everything that they receive. A self-elevated people. In other words, I deserve. Uh, this and that. I, I deserve more than I actually have. And you see, socialism that's on the rise in our country really takes advantage of those kind of people. Those kind of people are taught that uh, they deserve as much economic advancement as uh, everyone else in the country. See, socialism... It's a fake, it's a facade, but it makes, uh, uh, it, it appeals to the natural mind because here's the poor and the contrite down here and here's the wealthy and the elitist up here and they're saying, socialists say, what well, we need to have a perfect society is to bring down the rich and bring up the poor to where they're all on the same level and, and, and of course the government that we're talking about are us four up here on the top. And we're going to make sure that everybody pays their fair share. Have you heard any of this lately? 
Oh, it sickens me because I know where it came from. It's demonic. It's a devil's lie. These people that should be grateful for America and grateful for the liberties that we have in our country, the very same people come by the millions to destroy it. It's demonic. They're unthankful. And that spirit of, of ingratitude is apparent everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. All right, let's, uh, I've got to get through this. Um, they're unholy. Uh, that's, talk, that, that's talking about gross indecency. That encompasses uh, the pornographic trade. That, that encompasses lewd behavior. That, that encompasses uh, uh, this uh, embracing of, 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 of indecent language and actions in our culture. Not only are they unholy, but they're unloving. Astorges. This is a very important word here uh, that's hidden uh, in the Greek text of the New Testament because storge, storge is parental love. That's the natural love or bond between a mom, dad, and a child. That's storge. Well, in the Greek language, if you put an A in front of that, that means without. That means no love, no parental regard. That's what he's talking about. There's a forsaking of the children. Uh, latchkey kids out there to fend for themselves. Uh, that's uh, common in our own country and culture today. In fact, it's even encouraged in some places. Unloving, unloving toward uh, the family, unloving toward the society, unloving toward uh, uh, this, this term uh, could also refer to patriotic affection. Ah, storge. No love for the country. Truce breakers. Irreconcilable is the term, or irretrievable. These are people that refuse to forgive. Have you ever met people like that? I have. I have. I, I'm serious. I, and I'm meeting more and more of them. You know, people that have been hurt by someone else. And they, they said, I could live to be 100 and I'd never forget, never forgive what they did or said about me. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about an unwillingness to forgive those that have injured you. Now, somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, uh, how do you go about that and, and have a just society? How can you actually forgive somebody and still maintain a just society? Well, it's easy to do when you follow God's word. Because just because I am forgiving someone does not mean that I'm excusing what they did to hurt me or hurt my country. It doesn't mean that. Forgiving someone is relinquishing my right to take vengeance upon them that hurt me. And brother, the only way you can do that is by God's grace. That does not excuse what was done to me. That does not justify what was done to me. That does not explain it away. Nor does that relieve us from imposing justice upon that person. Because justice 
goes hand in hand with hope. If you do not have justice in a country, you will not have hope. And I'll explain a little bit later what that means. What he's talking about is a society or a culture that doesn't know anything about forgiveness and doesn't know anything about justice. That's why there's no hope. He's not just talking about truce breakers. He's also talking about false accusers. People that make up lies just to hurt somebody. Like Russian collusion. Just to hurt somebody. Infidelity. Just to hurt them. And then after the fact, come back and say, oh, well, we just had the wrong information, you know. As though that would excuse it. But brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, it's demonic. Do you hear me? This is the work of the devil. Because the word here, and this is a a good note for you to write down, false accusers is a compound Greek word that literally uh, means diabolos, which is a demonic accuser, malicious gospel that harms others. That's what it means. And that's what we see happening all the time today. Incontinent, without self-control, a slave to a person's own ambitions, a slave to our own ambitions. Fierce, that means brutal, beast-like behavior. Despisers of good. You know what Isaiah said in Isaiah 5 and verse 20? He said, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. What are you seeing happen in America today? They're turning it all the way around. They're calling evil, evil. The very things that we ought to be weeping over and repenting of, we're calling good and necessary and essential to the quality of freedom. And it's the very thing that will destroy freedom and liberty. Woe, woe, cursed be them that call evil good and good evil. Traitors, that's treachery. As it were, disloyalty, disloyalty. Heady. I know that that's a word we don't use anymore. It's Old English. But the word heady comes to us from a Greek word that means literally to be conceited over self-worth. <laughs> High-minded, tufo'o. High-minded, conceited. Heady, reckless, careless, rash. Then he goes into another form of love. Uh, It's called lovers of pleasure. Have you ever heard of hedonism? Hedonism? Well, if you put phileo with hedonism, you get the word that's used here, lovers of pleasures. It's um, indulgent passions with a depraved worldview. It, in, in other words, it's an unregenerate. It, it, you, don't, you don't have to teach a child to uh, uh, be uh, greedy. You, you don't have to teach them that. You, you don't have to teach a child to lie. You, you don't have to teach a child to be self-absorbed and stingy. If you doubt what I'm saying, go raise a few. Because it's not very long, they begin to manifest that fallen nature, that depraved nature about me, 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 
My, 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 my. The only thing that can rescue that, the only thing that can change that is the sovereign grace of God. So he's talking about the peril of the last days. And he's saying, listen, people are going to be in love with their own pleasure over any form of uh, love for God. And then he actually uh, shocks us in the next verse because he says uh, uh, these are the kinds of love. Oh, 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 I meant to mention this. When I say the lover of pleasure... In John chapter 3, verse 19, uh, Jesus said, This is the judgment that has come into the world, because light is come into the world, and men love darkness more than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They love darkness. They love demonically delusioned uh, worldviews. But the one that I want to focus upon the most is the lovers of God, because after all, that's what I want to be. How about you? I, 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 I want to be among that number that loves God. Not because I'm interested in God's stuff. Not because I'm interested in what God can do for me or give to me. But because He's worthy of my praise. He's worthy of my adoration. Because He has, through His own Son, Jesus Christ, saved my soul from a devil's hell. If it wasn't for anything else, brothers and sisters, we need to be objectively setting our love and affection upon Jesus Christ, just knowing that we're not going to be burning in hell at the end of this age. Let me be a doorkeeper. Let me be a floor sweeper in heaven rather than being a, a, a crown prince in hell. I love what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, when he said, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. I'm thankful for that verse. Because it doesn't matter what I have to endure in this world, even to the point of martyrdom. I know that I'm going to conquer through Christ. I'm going to conquer through Him that loved us. It is. It's very vital. And the Apostle Paul wants us to remember this and to treasure this this morning. The love of God. Uh, James said this in James chapter 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life which the Lord has promised to all them that love him. Isn't that great? Brothers and sisters, we have something as Christians. Oh, we might not have, we might not be on the Fortune 500 page uh, of history. We we might not ever be known uh, by anybody outside of this little circle of people. But brothers and sisters, I'm so thankful to know Jesus Christ and that in Him I have a victory that I can't find anywhere else. He is the answer for America's decline. He is the solution. For our Supreme Court. He is, the, he is the one that should be regarded. Should be respected. Should be feared. Because he is the king of kings. And the lord of lords. We need to love him. How is that love manifested? How is it manifested? 
I don't want to be among this, uh, uh, these people that Paul is warning about. In verse 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. I don't want to be in that crowd. I, I don't want to have an external form of religiosity this morning but have no internal value, no internal regard or faith for Jesus Christ or love for His people. I don't want to be among those uh, individuals. But Paul is warning us that this is the result of living in perilous times. And perilous times are here. Perilous times are here. And Jesus Christ is coming soon, I pray. But you might be sitting there and asking, well, Brother Jeff, what does it mean to be a lover of God? What does that look like? Did you know that to love God is commanded of the Scripture? It's not, it's not requested. It's not a request that God made some time ago. Uh, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 11, we could go there. We're not going to take the time to do it. But, but in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 1, He commands us to love the Lord our God and to keep His statutes. And, and I find it very interesting. Uh, we could make a, 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 a great case on this. In um, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses uh, 13 through 15, he makes a promise to those that love him. You'll have your reign in its season. I'll be with you in your battles. I'll protect you. But what he's doing, he's, comm he's, he's commanding his people Israel to regard him, to love him above all others. To seek him above all others. And his will. And that's where we have to come back to. Did you know that George Washington in his first inaugural address. When he, you know he's the first. By the way you won't learn this in school today. But George Washington was our first president. And George Washington was a great Christian. You won't hear about that today. In our schoolrooms, But it's the truth. But in his first inaugural address, he warns America. It's a beautiful, beautiful address. He warns America to never forget the God who gave us liberty. Did you know that? He said it's very possible in one generation to forget the God who gave us liberty. Brothers and sisters, America is there today. We have forgotten the God of our fathers. That we have sown to the wind of humanistic philosophy and evolutionism and rationalism and hedonism. And now we're reaping the whirlwind. Perilous times shall come. But what does it look like, child of God? What does it look like to love God? You know, it's one thing to say, oh, I love God, but... But what do I do because of that love? Turn your Bible very quickly to the book of 1 John. We've got to be very quick with these final points. Bear with me just a few more minutes. But I want to know what it means to be a lover of God. In 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I want you to notice this, please. In verse 4. He that saith, I know him, I know God, and keeps not his commandments is a liar. That, now that means he's deceived. And the truth is not in him. But whoso keeps his word, listen, listen, 
Whoso keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abides in him ought himself also to so walk even as he walked. How do you know a Christian? Is it, is, is it because of his creed? It is, is it because he has a, a fish on his bumper? Is it because uh, uh, he has a bumper sticker that says, Honk if you love Jesus? One time I nearly got into a fight at a red light because I did that. I honked. And evidently it was, it was his wife's car. He thought I was trying to pick a fight. He, he thought I was getting on to him for stopping at a red light. I said, oh, no, no, no. Uh, boy. I said, no, sir. I, I just read your book. It said, Hawk, if you love Jesus. I love Jesus. He said, oh, okay. It's my wife. My wife. You know. But anyway, is it because I go to church regularly? Is it because I have a Bible that I might read every once in a while? I mean, is that the measure of the depth of our Christianity or our love for God? Let it not be so. Brothers and sisters, John says, it's not what I say I am. It's what I do in proving what I say I am. Oh, listen to this. There's a reason John is called the apostle of love, by the way. He writes a lot about God's love and our love for God. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, love not the world. You hear this? This is a mandate. Love not the world. Don't set your affection on the world because this world is passing away. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, listen to this, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abides forever. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not trying to advocate uh, the idea that we can follow him perfectly and without failure. See, that's where a lot of people miss the gospel message. They think that the gospel message is only for those that have arrived at some point of perfection or holiness. That is exactly opposite. The reason I need the gospel this morning is because I ha am a sinner. I have failed. I know what failure means. And I know something about the consequences of that. And I need the gospel. The good news is that there's hope for a sinner like me. And that's why he's writing the way he's writing. But he doesn't want you to misunderstand what it means to be a lover of God. He says in 1 John chapter 3 in closing. This will be my last reference. In 1 John chapter 3. I love this. Behold. Behold. That means you need to look at it real close. You need to put your specs on to see this one. Behold, don't forget it. Don't forget it. Know this also in the midst of perilous times. Behold, 
What manner of love is this that the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God or the children of God? Therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not. It didn't, it didn't have any regard for Christ. The world still doesn't love Christ. Do you understand? They still don't. The first time I went to India, I learned this the hard way. The first time I went to India, we were holding an open meeting. And there must have been 300 people there, most of whom were Hindus. And most of them were very peaceable and very kind and generous people. They, they came to us with water. They came to us with uh, bread, uh, rice, uh, and, uh, food. And, and they were very hospitable and kind to us while we were teaching them about Jesus Christ. Everyone was happy at that point. But then, we began to, I preached on John 14, verse 6, uh, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father except by me. When I began to teach them the exclusivity of Christ, that, that Jesus was not just another God among the other gods, that Jesus was not just one of many ways to heaven, as they teach in the Hindu doctrine. Oh, the atmosphere began to change immediately. Because one of their priests stood up and he says, Did I understand you right, sir? Did you say that there's no way to heaven except through Jesus Christ? I said, Yes, sir, you heard me right. Oh, he was angry. They, don't, they reject that. I want you to understand the world still despises Christ. And those that follow him so closely, those that are conforming to his image, will also be despised and hated by the world. That's why he said, Behold, behold, what manner of love is this that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God or the children of God. Um. Uh, Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. It didn't love him, regard him. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. You hearing this? N-O-W. You know, he says, perilous times shall come. But at every point in that time frame, we have an eternal now. This is true for God's children in every point of time. Behold now. It doth not yet appear what we shall be in the end of the age, in the end of time. But this is what we do know. But we do know that when he shall appear, we shall be made like him. We shall be glorified like him. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> and listen to this. And when he shall appear, we shall, be, we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. What he's saying here is the more I'm living my life for Christ and my love for Christ, the more I'm going to look like him, the more I'm going to act like him, the more I'm going to resemble him, the more I'm going to respond uh, as he responded to the world and to the devil and to sin. Brothers and sisters, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. 
It is because of our faith in Jesus Christ that we have certain victory, even in death. Even in death. I don't know how you picture the uh, beheading of the Apostle Paul, but in my own little mind, I think about the Apostle Paul being in a a group of individuals being led out of the Austin Gate uh, that fateful day, and it's the day when he's going to be executed. And the charge is read, Paul the Apostle, you are going to be beheaded as an enemy of the state because of your Christian faith and your, uh, your evangelistic efforts around the Roman Empire. How do you plead, Paul? Paul says, hallelujah, I plead guilty. Well, you're going to be one of those many that are uh, executed today, Paul. How do you feel about that? Uh, sir, let me be the first one. See, that's the way I I view the Apostle Paul. I've read commentaries all week on this chapter. Uh, I've got many commentaries, and I've read them all this week. Uh, uh, Thank the Lord. And um, uh, most of the commentators will call uh, uh, 2 Timothy 4 Paul's swan song. Have you ever heard that expression? Paul's swan song. That's his dying words. Like a swan fading in the, in the distance. And I want you to realize, brothers and sisters, I don't think it's a swan song. I think it's a victory anthem. The Apostle Paul came to that butcher block with a heart full of gratitude and love for his Savior. And he would say, as he did many times, I thank thee, Father, that thou hast come to me worthy to suffer for thy namesake. I believe that. I believe that he was there uh, saying, I'm coming home. Open the gate, Lord. I'm coming home. See, that's the attitude of the Christian. He's not given us the spirit of fear, but he's given us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. He has given us that ability to love Christ and to love God above ourselves and our selfish pursuits and then to love one another with a pure and a holy love that glorifies the Lord and that magnifies his name and advances his gospel even in the face of perilous times that shall come. Thank you for your good attention. God bless you. Uh, Brother Andy.